Tuners. I'm Erin. I'm Victoria. I'm Hebeka. And this is Out of Tune. Welcome back to our second week in our symphony series. Um, and this week it's Erin's episode. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited. Excited too, and a little bit nervous. So, see, you understand what I was saying last week. Yeah, I do now. <laughs> I was just like, I feel like it's because this is so much like more in depth research than what yeah. we usually do, and it's just like I don't know. Also, we're getting like it's a grade. Yeah, we are getting grade. <laughs> so, but yeah, I guess just like whenever you want to start, take it away, Aaron. Yeah. So. I'll just explain a little bit. When we were brainstorming ideas, I thought it might be fun. Well, we bounced out a lot of ideas, but <laughs> I thought it would be fun to talk about politics in music. And then I needed to narrow it down. So I tried to narrow it down to the like World War time period. And then of course, when I started like Googling just to get ideas, Shasti 7 was mentioned like everywhere. Interesting. So, and I actually had a book that somebody lent to me right before COVID. So um, it's kind of like mine now on accident because I can never get it back. <laughs> but it's called Symphony for the City of the Dead. Um, mm. All about Shostakovich Symphony Number no. 7, like 400 pages of just that. So I read it and that's where I got a lot of my like um, ideas from, as well as another book mm. called Dangerous Melodies. So I'm just, I decided to go over a little bit about Russian politics, just because I think it can get confusing, because it changes so much within the time period of Shostakovich's life. Mm. So here are like the basics. Until 1917, Russia was a monarchy run by, they're called Tsars, but that's just another word for emperor pretty much. And then in 1917, there were two revolutions. One was the revolution to overthrow the monarchy. The people didn't like the monarchy's politics. They were very like reactionary instead of preparing. Um, and they lost a lot in World War One. So the Russians were not having it. And the stars <laughs> were also very greedy and held a lot of wealth for themselves and the bourgeoisie. Mm. which the working class did not like. Ironically, though, like Shostakovich, their family was very well off around this time, but they mm. did support the revolution. So it's kind of interesting. And the Tsar also had its own secret police. So Russia has been dealing with the whole secret police thing for a really long time. And the revolution that... Oh, okay, so that was revolution number one to overthrow the monarchy. And then... Was this with the Romanovs, do you know? um around because I, I feel like it's that anastasia movie that's just like it's like similar she the, they were in the monarchy i'm not sure if this okay. was the one that sorry i just got really curious for a second <laughs> no, you're fine it is curious they did mention it in the book but i didn't go into gotcha. um yeah and then the second revolution that year was the one that brought the communists to power mm. and Lenin directly like he was the power head for this and communists are also called Bolsheviks so you hear it a lot as the Bolshevik revolution mm. Bolsheviks are communists and the revolution was super dangerous um, Shostakovich and his sisters all saw people get shot 
people get attacked on the streets, all of that stuff. And Lenin was the guy in power and Shostakovich will often look back on him with fondness. I think just because Stalin was outwardly much more terrible, but mm. Lenin also was not that great. Like he abolished his parliament when he didn't get enough votes to be in power. So really like they never won. They just took over. <laughs> the classic but, male in love with himself. Issue. Yeah, so Lenin really wasn't that cool either. And then Stalin, who we all know and don't love, came to power in 1923. And then also confusing, St. Petersburg, Russia had three different names during Shostakovich's life. So Leningrad is the one that we talk about most because it was named to this from 1924 to 1991, but it was named Petrograd from 1914 to 1924. And then after 1991, it's St. Petersburg. It's confusing. Yes, but I appreciate the backstory. A lot changed, and that the name of the city changed a lot with politics too. Like Leningrad, obviously for Lenin. Mm-hmm. Petrograd was, it's kind of like the Russian way to say Saint Petersburg because Berg is a German thing. Yeah. So once they didn't want to be associated with the Germans in World War One, like everybody stopped oh. trying to be associated with the Germans, they changed it to Petrograd, and then Lenin came to power. They named it. Leningrad after Lenin died so wow I, and I, think, I think they nicknamed it Stalingrad sometimes too but I didn't go into that one wow. <laughs> yeah so Shostakovich was 11 years old when all of these revolutions started happening so he's been living with this stuff for his whole life and something important which i don't want to like skip over is that songs were very important in the bolshevik revolution so people sang protest songs and they mostly focused on leaving behind the old world defined by greediness wealth and the monarchy and moving to the new world where the hungry working class had the power Mm. and since there was death all around funeral songs were also really common around this time and shostakovich actually wrote a bunch himself and they were played for the deaths of protesters and then later the deaths of bolsheviks so it's like very um tough because the way russian politics work both sides are kind of terrible (laughs) so you almost don't know who you're sad about having passed is um but it was his funeral marches were played quite a bit even though he was like a kid Mm. um And then I wanted to talk a little bit about art in the early communist years. At first, it was very futuristic and minimalistic. So we have a lot of like geometric shapes and music, a lot of the time depicted factory machinery and like repetition to show the repetition of being a factory worker Mm. in a direct effort to try to appeal to communists. Um, Lenin used music and film and visual arts to give the appearance that the Communist Party catered to the common person. Uh, Meanwhile, the public wasn't really that happy with the the state being in control of everything, but he still tried to go with this narrative that the communists were helping everyone. And then after the death of Shostakovich's father, 
he started to work by playing music for silent films. And something that I found interesting was that his boss expected him to work for free at a time, and he hadn't paid Shostakovich for weeks. And his reasoning was that art is for the people. And mm. if Shostakovich truly loves art, why would he need to be paid for it? So, I mean, Shostakovich was like, no, <laughs> that's not how <laughs> it works. <laughs> and he is. me. Up, <laughs> yeah, so he sued his boss and started to work for a different theater. But I thought that was wow. very uh, telling of the times, I guess. But I think also Shostakovich, too, of his mindset. Yeah, of course. Go against that. I didn't know that. Right. Okay, wow. I know. I didn't know those details either. It's and really then, nice how he uh, handled it, too. Like, yeah, he so. actually sued it? Uh, yeah. his boss? That's bold. I'm a, I love him. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm going to try to go a little bit quicker through this section, but Shasta, I, this was also very unique. I've heard Shostakovich's second symphony. It's very weird. It's like short. It's two movements. Uh-huh. Like so non-standard and it uses an actual factory whistle. Um, so like he actually went around to different factories to hear the whistles and pick, pick out which one he liked. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and he also ended up having like actual just factory workers listen to the second and third symphonies just to make sure that they liked them and they got mixed reviews but it brings up the question of like how do composers at this time write music because the idea is that it's for the working class so do you write simple music that the working class can understand or do you write like complex music because who are we to say that the working class doesn't understand complex Mm. music um that's so interesting but it it is a big question and at this time stalin was alive so and in power so Mm -hmm. for them it was a very serious matter whereas like schoenberg really didn't care (laughs) he just Mm -hmm. made his art for the sophisticated people and that's fine right what well, was accepted too? I yeah, think. yeah, hmm. right. And again, Stalin was alive, so he must have liked how things were going for Shostakovich. But then, as most of us know this story, um, but in 1934, Shostakovich premiered his Lady Macbeth opera. Mm. Stalin hated it because it was mm. too too sexual, and he approved the article titled "Model Instead of Music" in the Pravda newspaper. So this tanked Shostakovich's reputation. Nobody wanted to work with him for a while, and Shostakovich was being watched by the NKVD, which is the secret police, and they took reports on his phone calls. And they did this to a lot of other composers too, though, like Stravinsky, I know mm-hmm. for sure, um, and. Shostakovich wanted to have his fourth symphony premiered and they had rehearsals and everything but the story I read in this book was that the communist members came to a rehearsal they listened for a while brought Shostakovich to a different room and then he left with his friend and said can't play the can't do this fourth symphony so they had to take it off we don't know what happened in that conversation but so i mean obviously they didn't like it yeah (laughs) and they were like well it's either your life or you play this piece yeah (laughs) it was definitely more experimental like it opens like very shrill tremolos like it's not like yeah it's not pretty standard yeah yeah so then 
he took a lot of time off, but he couldn't take too much time off because to be silent was to, you know, be against the government during that time. So he ended up writing the Fifth Symphony, which has a pretty joyous ending, but we don't even, you know, it sounds a little bit tense. So that's where the, we don't know. It's also like, isn't it like a sarcastic, like, portrayal of what he actually thought of the government, too? Like, yeah, like the marches and the fanfares and stuff, and he's just being undercover, like, I hate you. Yeah, that's what we think. Although he titled it a composer, well... I don't know if this was a title or a memo or something, but mm. I know he said about this symphony that it was a composer's response to just criticism, but I don't know if that's sarcastic too. That's, to me, that's very <laughs> sarcastic. Very yeah. That's like, he's, to me, that's like so for him that like would be so dangerous to do. Right. Wow. I, I just, have to agree. He's so bold. He's so bold. I, I love it. <laughs> also, uh, doing that right after the fourth, being cancelled i think it's really both yeah and yes definitely it gives even more power to the sarcasm yeah but anyway so that's just kind of like i feel like that's not where the meat of this presentation is but i feel like it's good to go over that beginning stuff oh my god yeah that's an important background establishment of what we're talking about or what you're going to talk about because i right. don't know anything <laughs> okay so now we get to the crazy <laughs> stuff which i have played symphony number no. seven before and i loved it but i had, had no idea how much went into it and how involved it was so i'm going to be talking a lot about world war ii as well because it it literally like you need to know everything about world war ii to get the full depth of the symphony okay and how involved it is um, and especially for Russia and America, everybody was into it. But okay, so here we go. Here's the kind of background on w- World War II and Russia's involvement. So Adolf Hitler had been keeping a close eye on Stalin, and same Stalin had been keeping a close eye on Hitler. And Hitler, like he does, he believed that the Slavic people were an quote unquote inferior race, just like Jewish people. And he had always had plans to attack these nations to give the Aryan race room to live, Mm. which is disgusting. And Stalin had killed most of his greatest army generals because Stalin didn't trust anybody. So if he didn't trust them, he killed them. And he had killed most of his great army generals and really tanked the Russian economy and he needed to form an alliance if he wanted to hold against the German army. So he reached out to France and England, uh, but France and England sent kind of low ranking officials to meet Stalin and they weren't very like prompt on trying to get an alliance with Stalin. And Stalin noticed he really didn't like that. (laughs) But then when he contacted Germany, they sent a very high ranking official really quick like in days and Stalin already kind of admired Hitler and the things that he did and the power that he had. So those two things just made it so that Stalin got into an alliance with Germany, which for some reason he thought was a good idea. (laughs) Um, Plot twist, it's not. Um, But they signed what's called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact which is a non-aggression pact between Germany and the USSR. Hmm. 
behind the scenes, Hitler had always been planning to launch an attack on the Russians, and he planned something called Operation Barbarossa, which is named after, I think, a mythical being um, that he idolized. And rumors of Operation Barbarossa did travel around Europe, but Stalin didn't believe them. He trusted Hitler. I don't, again, I don't know why. And Hitler's goal was to destroy all of Leningrad um, because Leningrad, although Moscow is the capital, Leningrad is kind of like the cultural epicenter. Yeah. And he wanted specifically to destroy all of Slavic culture. Hmm. And Operation Barbarossa launched on June 22nd of 1941. Since Stalin didn't believe it was going to happen, he like refused to let people prepare for it. And he also didn't want people to fight back the Germans because he thought he was anticipating them to like try to spark a pro- provocation, provocation. Mm-hmm. But he didn't, he just didn't believe that they'd ever betray the Russians, which again, like it's all, it's really difficult to look back on and understand like why. <laughs> it's just like they're just so obsessed with power, I think. Yeah. Like, just couldn't see straight. It was just like tunnel right. vision of like, I want to be the most powerful man ever. Yeah, no, you're like it just doesn't make sense. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And within minutes of the attacks, Germans destroyed over seven hundred Soviet fighter planes (laughs) that were like just on the ground, lined up, like not being used at all. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and reports of the bombings came to military officials in Moscow, but Stalin didn't believe them and refused to give permission to Soviet troops to fight back again because he thought that it must just be like them trying to get a rise out of the Russians. And then Stalin met with the German embassy later that day, and the Germans confirmed that it was an attack and that they were now in a state of war. Hmm. Yeah. That's so crazy. What? <laughs> he preferred to listen from the enemy than his mm-hmm. actual people? Yeah. That is yeah. so... It's power. Yeah. So not healthy. No, it's not. So in a way, it's like looking at the story, Stalin's almost just as at fault as Hitler. I mean, they're both I mean, they're both terrible people that... Yeah, but Stalin, like, didn't help (laughs) at all. So he made the situation a lot worse. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, once news... So Leningrad is actually, like, kind of tucked farther back into Russia just a little bit. Uh, but so news of the war reached Leningrad before the war actually reached Leningrad. So they had some time to prepare. Um, other oh, wow. than it was like the out the towns on the border of Russia that got hit first. Um, so news reached Leningrad and everybody was like wanting to sign up to help in some way. It's interesting because although they didn't like the communist government, they were all very proud of the Russian country and their culture so they didn't want that to go away huge like nationalism yeah right and it's like very touching to read about how passionate they all were about saving that Mm. but everybody wanted to sign up for the war effort um including shostakovich he actually went to sign up to be like a military guy but they turned him down most likely i mean they said it was because of his vision but probably the government was like no 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 he can't <laughs> he's, oh, <I> see. <laughs> he's a, a 
prominent figure. Yeah, he he was kind of a celebrity at the time. Yeah. Um, and there was a quote um, that states, there was a use for composers in wartime. The communist regime believed deeply in the power of music, particularly singing, to stir people up and raise morale. Mm. And on the day that the attack launched, the Composers Union of Russia actually decided to write mass songs to contribute to the war effort. Wow. Yeah, Shostakovich and his... Everybody was still assigned jobs, though. Like, anyone... It depend. There was like a range of different assignments. Like if you were a working person, like Shostakovich was working for the conservatory. Like they were assigned to d- digging ditches at first. Um, it's called the Luga Line. It was built right. to protect Russia and to make you know to stop the Germans from moving further faster. Um, wow. So they were assigned to ditch digging. Everybody was. <laughs> And uh, Shostakovich also wrote music for the troops around this time, like songs and marches. Um, And the music would help remind the troops of their culture and to not be discouraged by the Germans' destruction. And the Leningrad Musical Corps staged over 100 concerts per month for citizens of Leningrad. So it also helped to keep citizen morale up. Hmm. Shostakovich also um... went to... Yeah. That's such a uh, really smart strategy to keep the morale and the integrity of the culture by like their songs. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. Because if you are not motivated during the war, it, it gets worse. Right. It does. And, and that, yeah. You, start, you start to lose faith, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a common theme throughout this whole siege. And Shostakovich himself performed for the troops, too, which I thought was cute. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was really nice, too, that he actually... Um, do you know if it was an actual decision of his to uh, volunteer to the service? Or yeah. was it something... So that's actually really nice. Yeah, it was just him. Him and a student went to sign up. They accepted the student, but not him. Because oh, okay. he's Shostakovich. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. And then after the ditch digging was done, Shostakovich was assigned to the conservatory's rooftop firefighting squad to watch for bombs and fight fires if it ever happened. But he mostly did this during July and August when the Germans weren't at Leningrad yet. And there are rumors that he was scheduled during to be up there during times so that would probably be less dangerous <laughs> because he's Shostakovich. Um, wow. Yeah, and the Soviet government continued to mess up. Military officials turned down food shipments because they didn't want to look weak, and all of their food supplies were stored in one wooden warehouse. So keep that in mind. And then on July 19th of 1941, Shostakovich began to work on the Seventh Symphony. So all of this was happening. It's wild. The beginning of the war means the beginning of the symphony. Um, Wow. So I'm kind of going to take this movement by movement. Okay. Yeah. So it starts very confidently and broad. um, uh, But it's most commonly known by the invasion theme which is an upbeat melody that repeats over and over again, becoming slowly more menacing. So I'm going to share my sound quick. 
So I'm just going to start at the beginning so you can hear the opening. All right, so that's the beginning, and I'm going to skip to the invasion theme. Yay. I love this theme. Me too. so cute right so cute and tiny and like it's off in the distance right but then it gets closer and closer mm -hmm. the german army uh, <laughs> the first person to share that idea was shostakovich's friend isaac glickman who heard it for the first time right before he actually evacuated from leningrad because the hmm. The Germans were getting closer. <laughs> Don't want to be there. But I'm going to play a couple more spots where it gets more intense. Ooh. Um, I think I'll go a little bit later, maybe. Because it repeats so many times. I tried to listen to find the best spots.
Okay, and then it continues even more. Menacing. I know. Yeah, it is. It's it kind of scary. Yeah. It is also so uh, powerful and its impact is so big. It almost feels like different from the like the first time it yeah. appears. Oh yeah. yeah. It's kind of cute, like at the beginning. <laughs> it is. It's like very. It's like a cute, like oh, this is like fun, and then. <laughs> completely transforms into something that's not that yeah. <laughs> yeah okay so now a lot of people were leaving leningrad because it was completely surrounded by german territory and food supply was cut off so all the stores were empty just like at the beginning of covid <laughs> <laughs> too soon too soon yes. <laughs> shostakovich really didn't want to leave um a lot of people thought of it as a sign of defiance to stay in the city. And eventually him and his family tried to escape because, you know, his wife, you know, I mean, they had, they had kids. <laughs> so she was thinking very practically, but by that point, the train lines were already cut off. So he couldn't leave for a while. And August 31st marks the day that the siege of Leningrad began. 2.5 million people were still trapped in the city and the siege would last over 800 days. And okay, so next up is the second movement. This is when the Germans started bombing the city pretty daily. And there mm. were air raids also. And it's like literally every other day. And this was also the days after Shostakovich started writing the second movement. And this was also the time when the Soviets emergency food supply in that same wooden warehouse, the Germans bombed that. So there was no food anymore hmm. city except for a lot of the richer families had food but the rations for everyone else was like a couple pieces of bread per day and it went down like if you were a working person which like the definition of that is you know everyone <laughs> but if you're a working person you got like more and then like kids got less and hmm. people but it's still not enough to live uh, like at all so yeah, and this is one of the most disgusting things I've ever learned, but Hitler actually hired a nutritionist to create a timeline to determine how long it would take the citizens of Leningrad to starve to death with the food that they had left. Yeah. And he wrote out like a chart pretty much, and the Germans decided to starve the population of Len Leningrad rather than actually invade the city. Yeah. So that they wouldn't lose, it's just gross. Um, but this all started right before Shostakovich started writing the second movement. And he describes it as reminiscing on happier times in Leningrad, kind of like a dream. So I'll play the beginning and then I'll also play the middle where it changes and it gets scary. It's kind of like a creepy waltz. So I'll just play those back to back. Thank you. 
So those are the little puzzle pieces of the second movement. He doesn't really comment on the waltz in the middle, but I wonder if it has to do with the bombings and the air raids. There's no way he couldn't have been thinking about that at the time. And I wanted to share a quote from his wife, Nina, about this time. And she says, even during air raids, he seldom stopped working. If things began to get too hot, he calmly finished the bar he was writing, waited until the page dried, neatly arranged what he had written, and took it down with him into the bomb shelter. Whenever he was away from home during an air raid alarm, he always phoned me asking me not to forget to take his manuscripts down to the shelter. So that's how he kind of lived for a while. And it's kind of scary. I'm just taking I feel like I'm sitting here and I'm like not reacting as much, but it's literally all new information. <laughs> and I'm uh, experiencing a lot of this just like this is scary. It's scary to it me. Is. But I also am like you're when you're talking about like what he was experiencing while he's composing the symphony, it's almost like a live you know how we have like live photos like on our phones like yeah it's like something that's so real like this is like what he was and he's like turned it into music and i don't know i'm just sitting here kind of in awe like this was his life anyway i just needed to say that (laughs) i agree and he actually went on the radio also which was still going through all this they were still broadcasting and everything mostly like poetry But he went on the radio and he said, as a native of Leningrad who has never abandoned the city of my birth, I feel all the tension of this situation most keenly. My life and work are completely bound up with Leningrad, which makes sense because he lived there his whole life. He went to school at the conservatory. He taught at the conservatory. So everything he did was in the city. And then the third movement Shostakovich describes this movement, which is an adagio, as Russia's native expanses. So kind of looking out at the whole country and I think admiring the beauty of it, especially during this time when they're destroying it. The Germans are absolutely destroying it and taking it over, trying to say it's theirs. And Shostakovich, there's another quote here by him. I looked at my beloved city with pain and pride. It stood dinged in fires and tempered in battles. It suffered the deepest anguish of the war, and it was even more glorious now in its stern grandeur. So I think he was proud of it, withstanding all of this up until this point, and for even longer after that, after this. That's beautiful. Yeah. But to me, and I'll play the beginning as well as another excerpt from this. The beginning to me sounds kind of like anguish like a disbelief too, and just really profound sadness. And then I'll play another passage from later. Um, It's another melody that occurs throughout the whole thing. That sounds a lot more peaceful and hopeful. So it's tough to like tell exactly what he was thinking while writing this, but I'll pause here and we'll listen a little bit to the third movement.
there's like no good place to cut off <laughs> no we could sit here forever and ever it's so beautiful so it's really gorgeous yeah the conductor in the video like in the middle of the viola slowly he just smiles it's so cute <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's the third movement poor guy so sad <laughs> poor russia yeah, during this time, Shostakovich was used for a lot of propaganda because he was the biggest celebrity. Um, so they used him for posters a lot because the images of him in his firefighter suit were circulating. And it actually appeared on the top cover of Time magazine as the first composer to ever be on the cover of Time magazine. It's Whoa, I didn't know that. Yeah, I'll post the picture on our Instagram. But <laughs> Perfect. Is it an American magazine? Yeah. yeah yeah time magazine is like a big they have like the time person of the year mm -hmm. thing everybody was kind of watching because they knew shoskovich was writing something and they knew he was in the city so everybody was kind of like paying attention oh. it worked also as communist propaganda because here he is like a famous composer just working to defend the city and country like everyone else and it also promoted like some good nationalism and showed the bravery of all of the Russian citizens for just like surviving through this stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, totally. Yeah. So then there's kind of a lull in his writing because his family actually, the government kind of like made them leave. <laughs> they took a private plane to take him to Moscow, him and his family, his wife and their two kids. And he wanted to take his sister his nephew and his mom, but they wouldn't bring them at first. And they kept telling him, we'll go back for them. Like, don't worry. They didn't for a while though. Um, but they escaped to Moscow and then had to leave because the Germans decided to invade Moscow. Cute. <laughs> so they boarded a train to go to a town called Kribyshev. I don't know if I'm saying that right. And the train ride was like terrible and it lasted two weeks. They didn't have beds. They didn't have food. Everybody was like sleeping on the floor. They'd take shifts like the women would sleep at night and the men would sleep during the day. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So even for like the best of the best, the conditions were terrible. But a lot of the arts people were taken away, like the Leningrad Conservatory. They were all stationed in Tashkent, <laughs> um, which Shostakovich thought about going there, but they ended up stopping in Kuibyshev because it was just closer, you know, and they didn't want to make the kids sit through this train ride so long. Hmm. And they eventually had their own apartment. And again, he had received these promises that his mother, his sister, and nephew would be brought to them, but this didn't actually happen until after he finished the symphony, which is kind of like, I wonder if the government did that on purpose, you know? Mm. It's like to keep him going. I'm, I'm not sure. Because um, it was like right after he finished the symphony that they decided to bring them over. But after the train ride, Shostakovich felt pretty depressed and he couldn't write, which reasonable. <laughs> yeah. At this time, the citizens of Leningrad were all starving. Uh, people would wake up to find their family members dead just on the daily and people would sit down to rest on a bench and never wake up this kind of thing and civilians end up like if a horse died on the street there would be like a whole race to get the meat from it they would eat like look for their pets to like because they didn't have any other food the bread was beginning to be made with things like sawdust that aren't actually edible yeah but they didn't have anything because the germans were blocking off 
everything. Um, and it gets worse than that, but I won't mention it. Um, but around this time, a huge turning point occurred for the Soviet Union on December 7th. Oh my gosh, sorry. December 7th of 1941, which a lot of Americans know as the day Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese. Mm -hmm. This brought the US, the UK, and Russia, or the USSR, all together to become the allied forces into an alliance against Germany, Italy, and Japan, which were the Axis forces. Yes. Thank you, world history from middle school (laughs) and high school. So this brings on the fourth movement, which Jessica, which finally is writing. And he was in a happier place. They had food. They like people would gift them food and they were in a city that the Russian or the Germans didn't have control over. So they had like real bread and jam and like butter. What a concept. <laughs> yeah, so they were a lot happier. Um, and I'll play the opening of the fourth movement, which this is just my idea, but I think it sounds kind of like Leningrad at this point, which is frozen and like kind of dead, but like subdued and then slowly waking up because the springtime is coming in Leningrad, which makes things a lot better for Mm. it's warm food grows in the spring. The rebirth. Right. Some rebirth. And they're like, persisting under the circumstances ready to overcome the german forces and then it just it kind of increases with power throughout the whole thing it's really good and there's a lot that i'm obviously skipping over but i'll just play at the beginning quick and then i'm gonna skip to the end just so you can kind of hear both parts okay
<laughs> Clapping is how I feel right now. <laughs> so good. Very victorious. It is. Yeah. Don't worry. The story keeps going, though. <laughs> I just wanted to say that I, I really felt missing the or playing orchestra right now. Yeah. This part. Yeah. So when Shostakovich was asked about the symphony and what it was about, he said, of course, fascism. But music, oh, this gets into music absolutism for a second here, I guess, maybe. <laughs> music, real music, can never literally be tied to a theme. Nazi Nazism is the only, oh my gosh, sorry. Nazism is not the only form of fascism. This music is about all forms of terror, slavery, and bondage of the spirit. Which makes one think if he's talking about Stalin as well, which this is like one of those things where he's like saying it, but not saying it, you know, Yeah. It's, but he's anyway, being coy, he's being coy. <laughs> His former conservatory students spread the rumors that Shostakovich actually would whistle this theme even before writing the symphony and that it was the theme that depicted Stalin, which I don't, I think in this context, it definitely is more like the Germans, but also maybe it was about Stalin too. Who knows? Mm. Yeah. So another big thing about, well, everybody was hyped for this. Like everyone everywhere was hyped for this symphony and people were asking all over to be the first to premiere it. And the first premiere of the piece happened in Kuibyshev, where Shostakovich was staying. And he made a statement actually right before the performance saying, my music is my weapon. We are struggling for the highest human ideals in history. We are battling for our culture, for science, for art, for everything we have cared about. I dedicate my seventh symphony to our struggle with fascism, to our coming victory over the enemy, and to my native city, Leningrad, which is pretty powerful. And people have said that a lot about Shostakovich and during the war, it was said a lot that music is the weapon or a weapon. So it's, it was really important during wartime. And obviously the audience and orchestra loved the piece. It was very, for Russians to play this, especially it was very meaningful. American orchestras seemed a little, I mean, I'm sure they loved it too, but <laughs> it was a big hustle to get it over to the U S and everybody was fighting over playing it hmm. this obviously brings me to the american premiere which was really important because the u.s and russia everybody like citizens knew about each other but a citizen in america didn't know what the typical day for a citizen in russia was like and same vice versa so they wanted to strengthen that bond because i mean at this point americans were just suspicious of russia and russia was suspicious of america so it kind of humanizes russia to have this symphony be played and to actually like hear something from the culture and they were now in this new alliance with each other to just to defeat the germans so that's why this was very important for the russian cause and like i said all u.s conductors were clamoring to try and premiere this but toscanini who is a fellow victim of fascism was eventually chosen and Shostakovich wrote him like a little note it was cute um i didn't know that either hmm. yeah and <laughs> this piece actually took a really bizarre journey to get to america um the printed parts were difficult to come by they didn't really have paper in russia at this time <laughs> everything oh 
Um, so the government, the Soviet government took pictures of the parts and the score, put them on a microfilm and sent them out. But the Germans had a block on most of the Soviet transportation. So it ended up passing through a lot of territories of allied countries. And it went through Iran to Iraq, then to Egypt, then to Africa, then to Brazil, to Florida, Washington, D.C., and then it was in New York City. So it took wow. forever. lost it like six times. <laughs> what a pilgrimage. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, this was around the same time that the Time magazine with Shostakovich's face on it was going around. So Americans were just all for this. And some of the very real outcomes of the symphony was that... Um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who I will call FDR from now on, he, Russia needed planes, food, weapons, medical supplies, like everything. And the symphony kind of highlighted the cultural importance of like needing this, you know, that they're people too, they need help too. And FDR um, sent over these materials, even though it wasn't like necessarily the popular choice. And America loved the symphony, and um, they also donated through other organizations rather than just government help, like independent organizations. And U.S. donations to the Russian war effort actually quadrupled in the year that the symphony was premiered. So it actually really brought yeah. a, <laughs> a huge impact, yeah. A giant impact. And then... Even though that, that was like, you know, the war helpfulness, but actually, no, the Leningrad premiere was actually also very helpful. This symphony did so much more than I even thought it did. But anyway, so Shostakovich really wanted it to be premiered in Leningrad because it was his hometown. <laughs> I mean, it, it makes sense. <laughs> but it's a little wild considering like the when reading about Leningrad at this time, it seems like I'm reading like from the hunger games like what districts 12 in the hunger games was like i agree yeah so it's very real yeah and everyone was dead or dying including most of the members of the leningrad radio symphony um the conductor carl eliasberg was still alive and once he got the news that they wanted to perform the symphony no i mean nobody was rehearsing in this symphony at the time they were all off of work pretty much but Carl, the conductor, went door to door in Leningrad searching for musicians because they didn't have anybody. People were all like dead. So they ended up recruiting anyone they could find, including musicians from the military band, which was actually really helpful because they ended up getting more food for the work they were doing in preparing the symphony. Um, and it was too much for the orchestra to play the Shostakovich right away like they could only rehearse for like 20 minutes at a time because they were all so weak at the beginning before getting any food or practice in um so they played like waltzes on the radio to get back on their feet and mm -hmm. like Tchaikovsky symphonies and then they started rehearsing the Shostakovich as well but even just these waltzes and things played over the radio like the public loved it they really liked hearing music again and I think the musicians liked it too. And the premiere 
was set to take place on August 9th of 1942, which was a significant date because Hitler had bragged about having a celebratory dinner in Leningrad on that day. Like, that was his plan, but oh. like, uh, <laughs> like you thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's yeah. funny. Yeah, it is kind of funny. But also, the military also organized for the premiere because they planned, the government planned to light up the whole hall that the orchestra would be playing in for the event because they were even like selling concert tickets, which is bizarre to think about how like they were in the worst conditions and they were still like selling concert tickets and going to work. Wow. But they were going to light up and make everything kind of like normal-ish for the premiere and given that they were in a blackout at all other times, they realized that the hall would be a really good target for German troops to bomb. So the military like head guy specifically targeted German headquarters for like the two hours that the symphony was being played just to keep Leningrad safe for those like couple of hours, which I think is wild. That's crazy. Yeah, and the hall was pretty much packed, and again, they put the whole effort in making it kind of normal. Um, and the premiere was not only played in person and on the radio, but they also played it through loudspeakers to the German troops who were, like, waiting in the trenches. Just to, like... Whoa. <laughs> yeah, kind of, like, show off, like, yeah, we're still alive, and playing our music you have not destroyed our culture thank but you also like what a message too i know oh, I'm, yeah. gonna, I'm gonna have to think about that a really long time <laughs> and here are a couple quotes um one from the audience member they said it was so meaningful for all of us we realized that this concert might be the last thing we'd ever do in our lives which is true that people were dying like on the daily mm. and then a german soldier later told Eliasberg, the conductor of the Leningrad Radio Symphony, he said it had a slow but powerful effect on us. The realization began to draw that we would never take Leningrad, but something else started to happen. We began to see that there was something stronger than starvation, fear, and death. The will to stay human. Which to me makes sense because it does make sense, yeah. They were making these people I mean, with starvation, and the book goes into, like, a scary amount of detail, but starvation would make people kind of like, you know, you have to just fight to live, much less do anything else. So to grasp onto these, like, balls of light and warmth in music and something like that was really powerful and even to the people you know the people who are fighting for the germans i think it's it like something like uh more powerful than like what's going on right then like it meant yeah. so much more right puts things into perspective i think yeah and that wasn't the end of this siege obviously but it was kind of the beginning of the end mm. because leningrad around this time was getting warmer so people they grew a lot of cabbages, but people would also just eat like dandelions and grass. Not great, but it is food. <laughs> so it's edible. Yeah, which is it was like anything they could get at this point. And then on January of 1943, they launched something called Operation Spark, in which the Soviet forces broke the ring that the Germans had around Leningrad, which means like the barrier was gone. So they could build a train line to go through 
to deliver food and everything, although it was still dangerous, like they were still surrounded by Germans, but they had this one line. And then, oh, this quote I found very interesting from a Russian military official. He said, by the beginning of January, all of the musicians in our artillery orchestra knew their scores and were ready to launch our own offensive. So he's like using music as a comparison, which I thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah, and then Shostakovich wrote another symphony, but it was the Eighth Symphony, which was really sad. <laughs> so it wasn't that popular. <laughs> I'm sure he was depressed, as per usual. <laughs> but the Russians continued to win more and more battles, now that they had food and help from the Allied forces. And the siege of Leningrad, they finally battled their last German army, and the siege of Leningrad ended on January 27th of 1944, after 872 872 days of being trapped by the Germans. And the city's population went from 2.5 million to about 500,000. So it was devastating. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's and very it's very humbling to think of that. Yeah. Right. And it was just scary cuz to go into so much detail and learn so much about this and what they went through yeah but yeah just after all after the war i mean people still had to be careful because stalin was alive until 1953 and everybody kept running into little issues like shostakovich was denounced again and then he was persuaded to join the communist party which he never like wanted at all but everybody was kind of like coerced into doing little things here and there in this time period right but the war i mean was terrible they were all probably very tired by then but yeah that's the end of that story but the whole point of going through this was to kind of learn about just how i had no idea just how entwined this one symphony was with politics and the war um but people really saw music as a weapon, which I thought was interesting to show oh. defiance to the opposing forces. Like we're still here, you know, we have our, our culture. Yeah. And then by also giving the civilians something to live for, because so many people went to the premiere and all the orchestra members, even though they were like starving, continued to show up to play. Um, and even just the hope of the symphony, I think, was something that kept people going for the first half of the war to wait to listen to this thing. And citizens also, at this time, took up reading and writing, so other forms of art. And the library stayed open just to let people read. <laughs> and theaters even, like, hosted comedy shows still, and the radio still remained active. Poets would speak on there. And the Russians took a lot of pride in their art and it intentionally took a more active role in it despite the Germans. People who kept active also just lived longer. Um, the starvation conditions. But even looking back, like symphonies number two and three, they were very entwined with politics and just the communist ideals of having the working class be the most important thing just in their opinion and their representation in art. And then symphonies four and five, obviously we know that story well, but the delayed premiere of the fourth symphony directly caused by the communist officials. And then the whole creation of the fifth symphony as a redemption arc for Shostakovich. 
yeah that's the end i don't know this was definitely more like story like than victoria's presentation but what are your thoughts i don't know i i'm in awe honestly i feel like i'm having the same reaction to you as i didn't realize how into it like i knew sort of like it was about this whole historical period but I think it's a direct reflection. I didn't realize how direct of a reflection it was of what was going on at the time. That that Shostakovich, it's it's like the story. Literally, I don't. There's there has to be a better word. It's like not fictional. It's completely like a non-fictional symphony, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And I've never thought of a symphony that way before. No. I've always thought of it as something that's like supposed to represent something or this is um or like a, it represents a feeling an emotion a, a story but literally for it to to be the story for Shostakovich that for like that to me is yeah very uh profound so that's my biggest for all of that I was just sitting here like learning so much Erin you did a really wonderful job I yeah yeah, I have to second that. I didn't um, know much about the that time um, period with related to the symphony. So thank you so much for the history. You said that it was just history, but it is the history and uh, mm -hmm. you explained it so well. Uh, I was all the time like really paying attention and probably that's why it didn't make a lot of reactions. But I was just taking it uh, in and realizing, thinking a lot of about a lot of stuff. But I think one thing that I would like to share is um, how music can be powerful. And yeah, this is very cliche. I don't know how to say something like that. But to realize how Shostakovich used his music to help since the beginning so mm -hmm. since the beginning he he was willing to be there serving but then they didn't allow him and but mm -hmm. then he used the, his musics on the radios and that kept people alive yeah literally mm. and then with this seventh symphony look how how big was the was the impact of that it was i am really um amazed by how like the huge impact that it had not only um not only in russia and, and their people and how they changed the the war but how uh, how it came how it got here and like other side of the the sea and how um from because of that a lot of help also could come through because of that symphony so i am yeah. really amazed um and I, I i think if you just skipped the whole history and just showed me that part it wouldn't have that impact <laughs> so thank you for all the details yes i also didn't realize that it played a role also during the war i didn't realize it because of when you were talking about 
like the I guess it was the story or not the story the quote from a German soldier of him of how they listened to it and how it was like became clear to them that they would never take full control of Leningrad yeah that to me was also super like what I don't know to for a symphony to to make that clear or to um serve that purpose um is remarkable yeah even and I didn't if, I didn't realize like I had no idea like it even played a role during that time no I know when I read articles about it online I was just like oh my god <laughs> like yeah. I, I didn't know I love this symphony but me too I've never played it though very sad it's pretty like it's not that difficult either I mean also this I thought is an interesting tidbit I didn't include it right away but it's scored for like over a hundred orchestra members, which is mm. why it was really difficult for the Leningrad Symphony to put it on because they had like nobody. But mm. um, there are rumors that he scored it for that many people because people who were playing in the orchestra got extra rations. Oh, I see. He'd be keeping, he'd be giving more people food in a way by just to having a bigger orchestra. That almost makes me so sad. I mean, it, it makes me happy, but also makes yeah. me sad. Like it is just so. Like literally everything of the symphony is is what was happening. I've never, I've never had this um, thought or impression of a symphony before. No, and I think it is really unique. Um, I mean, I definitely like. I was looking mostly into this because it just was very intriguing, but reading about other parts of the war it was a lot of like confusion of what do we do about German music? Like, do we play it? Should right. we play it? What about Wagner? Like, oh, that's sketchy. <laughs> Even Wagner now is still like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, which that, but that's like a whole another story. That's, that's a whole can of worms, yeah. That'll be like our Halloween episodes, you know? Oh my so god horror <laughs> stories of composers or something yeah <laughs> that's what i felt it's such a unique like situation i don't think there's anything really like it yeah definitely not well not that i know of at least <laughs> true yeah i think it's it's definitely uncomfortable to hear yeah. these stories but i think it's so yeah. important because it just reminds me of how good I am right now with the situation. That's very true. And I think we should we should remind ourselves more and more about like what the human civilization civilization already has been through. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not related to music, but yeah, that's yeah. a thought I had. Hundred percent agree. Yeah, I agree too. Beautifully said. You always have a beautiful like closing thought all yeah. the time. <laughs> so wonderful. Well, should we move on to our yeah. small second half of our how is our tuning this week, you guys? Yeah. Well, I guess I can go. It was it's actually only been for those listening like four days. Yes. <laughs> I'll give it a four out of 10. We're going to go with a number today. Oh, okay. An improvement from cloud, I'd say. Okay. All right. Okay. 
progress any progress is good progress i don't really have much to say uh, i feel like i don't either about like mostly what i've been doing is working and then reading about Jostakovich, which will probably be the rest of my life let's be L real living the dream <laughs> <laughs> we're at a 10. that's so funny i feel like my tuning i mean i haven't been practicing Oh, no. I've been taking a break. Why? <laughs> um, I've mostly been grading. I've been doing a lot of grading. I just finished my portion of final exams. And I'm going to have to do some more grading at some point when I get the juries for the minor mu uh, music minor students and elective students. So that'll be fun. Um, but when this podcast goes up on saturday um which will be let me check the date that'll be the 15th of may we will be graduated yes. so my number is going to be based off of that which is going to be a 10 out of 10 because i know we're going to have a ball at graduation even though like it's going to be like socially distance whatever i feel like we need to celebrate all the hard work that we've done and that's how i feel Aww. <laughs> I have to agree with you, Victoria. I also gave a 10 out of 10. It's really nice to be actually graduating. And I don't know, I am still thinking about the, the symphony and how privileged I am. Yeah. Um, so I have food and I have a place to live. And for that, I'll give a 10. I love that. It's really kind. Oh, well, I guess that brings us to the end of this of the second episode in our symphony series. Um, next week will be Miss Habeka, um, which yes. I'm very excited about. So that'll be fun. Um, and yeah, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, etc. Um, our podcasts go up every Saturday at 7 a.m. Um, and also you can find us on Instagram at Out of Tune Pod, Facebook at Out of Tune Podcast. And this has been Out of Tune on Zoom. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye.